looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello and welcome to the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus timely and entertaining sports and pop culture topics. And today we're going to be talking about Steve Wilkes getting fired by the 49ers, who are some possible candidates to replace him. We're going to discuss 15 free agents that the 49ers have signed, the Brandon Ayuk situation if he wants out, why Debo Samuel and George Kittle will not be traded. Then we're going to look at offensive free agents that the 49ers have, a few that they could look to re-sign, and we're going to discuss cap hits and some players that could either be released or restructured to provide some cap relief. In the plus section, we're going to be talking about NBA All-Star Weekend, the slam dunk competition, the three-point competition, and the actual All-Star game, Madam Webb bombing at the box office, and the show Louder Milk on Netflix starring Ron Livingston and why you should be watching it. But like always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! So Steve Wilkes, defensive coordinator for one year in San Francisco, has been relieved of his duties, coming as a shock to many casuals, meaning people in the media who do not follow the 49ers weekly, monthly, or even daily, like a lot of us do, and a lot of the 49er beat reporters who are on the scene, you know, reporting from Santa Clara a couple times a week, are not surprised by this. And I think it was really encapsulated during the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter or overtime, whatever it was, when Shanahan took a timeout because he did not like the defense that Wilkes had set up. I think it was a third and six, and he had everybody, five defensive backs, beyond the first down line. And that's been an issue with Steve Wilkes since he has gotten here. Defensive backs playing way too soft, way too far off of the ball at times. There was a second, what was it, a second and first and 15 or second and 15 during the Super Bowl fourth quarter overtime where instead of, I think it was second and 15, it was the play where Marquez Valdez-Scantling caught the ball on the right-hand side, then he was trying to fight for extra yardage, but he was kind of thrown backwards and wound up losing four or five. Second and 14, Steve Wilkes had everybody at the first down marker, basically saying, here, take six, seven, or eight yards. For someone who is steeped in secondary experience, defensive back experience, he does not allow his cornerbacks to challenge receivers the way, obviously, Steve Spagnuolo allow Trent McDuffie and Jadavius uh, Sneed to challenge Ayuk and Debo Samuel. Beyond that, and this is beyond the Super Bowl, guys. His blitzes weren't well-designed. They were ill-timed. They were obvious. Another ill-timed blitz in the Super Bowl where Tony Romo was saying, why are you blitzing here? And it was just very obvious. They basically sent everybody, and they wound up blitzing like seven, 
And that was a completion, I think, to Rasheed Rice across the middle, wound up getting into 49er territory. This is on the overtime drive. But it's not just that. Yes, you know, the first five games when they're undefeated, everything is going okay, and, and people are, you know, thinking everything's going well. Then you have the three-game losing streak, where at Cleveland, they were going up against P.J. Walker, who's a third-string quarterback. They did pick him off twice, fine. But they couldn't stop the run. And this was a game that had rain, a third-string quarterback. You knew they were going to run the ball, and Cleveland still ran it 24 times for 160 yards and a touchdown. It's almost seven yards a carry. Obviously lost that game, and obviously Brock Purdy got him into position for a Jake Moody field goal, which he missed. The Monday night game against Minnesota, playing against Kirk Cousins, who is a top-10 quarterback, but without Justin Jefferson. The infamous third, the Vikings have the ball third and six from their own 40 with 17 seconds left. They have no timeouts. Wilk sends an all-out blitz. Cousins throws a touchdown pass to Jordan Addison. Vikings wind up winning that game by five points. Not to say that if they don't win that, if they don't make that touchdown, the Niners win by two. I'm not not saying that, but if that drive results in no points or worst-case scenario field goal, could have a different outlook. But again, ill-timed, poorly disguised blitz. that and, and Kyle Shanahan politely chewed him out in the post-game press conference, saying that Steve Wilkes knows better, he shouldn't have done that. And as a coach, like in the Super Bowl, Shanahan should have overruled that. Should have called a timeout and said, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So this was, listen, this was a culmination of things. Now we're going to go over some stats where when you look at it and you say in a vacuum, maybe Steve Wilkes should not have gotten fired, but I don't think Shanahan wants to worry about the defense so uh, in 2024 as much as he possibly did this past season. Remember, he asked Steve Wilkes to come down from the booth uh, to the field, which, you know, a- after, you know, a few weeks, Steve Wilkes was saying, oh, you know, I like being able to look in the player's eyes and, and more timely communication with Fred Warner, among others. So that that seemed to be like a big nothing burger, but it also was a way for him to build his rapport with his players. You know, and beyond that, there were rumblings of players not feeling like Wilkes was putting them in the best situation. The secondary folks were happy. I know Traverius Ward, Ambry Thomas spoke very highly of him about how he was able to take their game to the next level. Traverius Ward, for sure, being a second-team All-Pro. But he never was able to really connect the back end, the secondary, to the front end, the pass rush. And even with the numbers I'm about to share with you guys, well, let's say this first. I'm going to go over the numbers for for the past five years to show you where Steve Wilkes ranks compared to D'Amico Ryans and Robert Sala when he was the head coach, the defensive coordinator during the Super Bowl year of 2019. The issue was, though, the last seven weeks of the regular season, the 49ers' defense was a bottom third unit. Run defense was terrible. Average uh, yards per carry. Expected yardage over average. 
Now, he did make some good adjustments in the Packer game and the Lion game in the second half. And for the most part, you know, holding the Chiefs to 19 points, one touchdown is a pretty good job. Now, remember, this isn't the Chiefs of last year, 2019. This isn't the super explosive Chiefs offense. They only scored two touchdowns against the, the Ravens in the AFC Championship game. And none in the second, no, none in the second half. So to allow 19 points and then a touchdown drive in overtime is not the most incriminating thing in the world, but it is cumulative. The Niner defense got worse as the season went on. And for the amount of all pros and pro bowlers they have on the defense, I think Shanahan and us and, and fans and knowledgeable people that are watching every game expected more. Talking heads in the media are just reacting to the one year and you got they're casuals, they're generalists. They're not following any one team with a lot of detail. But they're on TV and they get people to listen to them and people on social media and other places just keep parroting the same crap that they hear without doing the research or understanding it for themselves. But the numbers, let's get into the numbers, guys. So Steve Wilkes this year, overall defense, 304 passing uh, total yards. Passing was 214. Rushing was 90 yards a game. Points allowed, 17 and a half. Turnovers total, 28 with 22 interceptions and 48 sacks. All right. And I think people have romanticized D'Amico Ryan's run because his issue in watching, again, every game, and a lot of the games more than once. Was he more aggressive than Steve Wilkes? Yes, but he telegraphed his blitzes like crazy. And quite a bit in his first year in 2021. And the first portion in 2022, he started dialing it back. He would send everyone everyone up on the line for almost an all-out blitz, or he would drop one or two people. But he would cause his cornerbacks to play man up on an island, and often... They got beat. A Lenore, a Thomas, Charvarius Ward at times, although he held his own, had a much better 2023 than, than a 2022. But D'Amico Ryans was no tremendous shakes at defensive coordinator overall. We're going to get there, but D'Amico Ryans was not. So last year, 2022, D'Amico Ryans' final year in San Francisco, 301 total yards, so two yards less. Than Wilkes, 223 passing yards, so nine yards more than Wilkes' defense. Rushing yards, 78 yards per game, 12 less than Wilkes. Points per game, 16.3, 1.2 less than Wilkes. Turnovers, 30. Two more ter- total turnovers, but two less interceptions. And 44 sacks by D'Amico Ryan's defense. That's four sacks less than Steve Wilkes. 2021, D'Amico Ryan's first year, 310 total yards. That's six more than Wilkes in 2023. 206 passing. So that's the best of these three years. So eight yards per game less than Steve Wilkes. 104 rushing yards a game. So that's 14 yards more or worse. 21 and a half points per game let up. That's four points worse. Only 20 turnovers. Eight fewer than Wilkes' defense this past year, and only nine interceptions, 13 fewer 
still had the same number of sacks, 48. So D'Amico Ryans versus Steve Wilkes. If you kind of average it out, D'Amico Ryans, two years, bit of a wash. Bit of a wash, and there's certainly some areas where Wilkes is better, certainly some areas where D'Amico Ryans performed better. Now, the defense, you should be holding this, holding the 49ers up against, and this is the percept- perceptual defense that people have of San Francisco, I think, in their head, was 2019. Super Bowl year, Robert Sala's last year as defensive coordinator. 282 passing yards per game allowed, 21 yards less than Steve Wilkes this past year. 169 passing yards allowed per game, 45 yards per game less than Wilkes' defense this past year. Rushing was the worst of the four, 112.6. So that was 22 yards per game more. Points, 19.4. So averaging two more points per game than Wilkes. 27 turnovers. Total, one less than Wilkes. Only 12 interceptions, 10 less than Steve Wilkes. And for as much as we want to say that the Niners' defense, the defensive line, they were sack masters, 48 sacks again. 2023, 48. 2022, 44. 2021, 48. 2019, 48. 48 is not a terrible number, but when you look at the fact that the Eagles put up 70 sacks in 2022, and I think the, the Ravens or Chiefs had close to 60, This year, 48 is an okay number. Nothing to really get yourself super excited about. And and pressures are a separate thing. Great. But let's just go with the tangible sacks. I think, again, I've been saying it, the Niners have been lived, have been living on a romanticized perception of how good the defense, the pass rush, and even the run defense is. The run defense was 112 a game in 2019. 104 a game in 2021, 78, and then 90. So the past two years were obviously their best years. But again, (coughs) the Niners this year, their last third of the season, let's say the last half of the season, really regressed. Significantly regressed. And that was why in some, Steve Wilkes was let go. He might have been let go even if the Niners won the Super Bowl. And the candidates that are coming out, and people just are crazy, Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll. So former Pats head coach, former Seahawks head coach. Pete Carroll was the former 49er defensive coordinator 30 years ago, 1995, year after they won the Super Bowl. I don't think they are going to want to become a defensive head coach. I think they would rather sit on the couch, or defensive coordinator. I think they'd rather sit on the couch and relax and wait for a head coaching opportunity maybe next year then be a D coordinator. And as far as Shanahan goes, I'm sure he really wants a Super Bowl. I mean, obviously, he really, really wants a Super Bowl. But if especially Belichick comes in and they win it, even if his, you know, they win 35 to 10 in the Super Bowl, Belichick's going to get a lot of that credit. It's going to be a C, Shanahan couldn't win without Belichick. But at the same time, you could say C, Andy Reid couldn't win without Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid, as great as an offensive coordinator, as a head coach as he was in Philadelphia, could not win a Super Bowl without a generational quarterback. Are you really going to hold that against Andy Reid? John Elway couldn't win a Super Bowl without um, Terrell Davis those two years at running back. 
Dan Marino never won a Super Bowl, didn't have a good running game. It needs to be a complete picture. You, you Sometimes you can't be so deficient in a certain area and really overcome the deficiencies in the playoffs, in, an NF, in a championship game, or in a Super Bowl. Now, Shanahan's deficiencies are getting away from the run against a team that you know can't stop the run, and that's both Chiefs' Super Bowl losses. No runs, their last four snaps in the Super Bowl near midfield when they were only down by four points. No runs, all throws. And no runs on the first two possessions of the third quarter. Otherwise, went for it on fourth down, threw in a trick play. He was more aggressive than he's been, but he forgets that he is his father's son and dad, Mike Shanahan, loves to run the ball, which Kyle does, but he gets away from it at inopportune times. But back to the candidates. So Bill Belichick's not coming here. I can't imagine Pete Carroll comes here unless he really wants to stick it to the Seahawks. But from what I understand, he is a Seattle Seahawk um, consultant at the moment. Brandon Staley, former Charger head coach, former Rams defense coordinator, was the D coordinator for the Rams the year they won the Super Bowl. But his defenses have been sh- have been ridiculed and shredded in San Diego, and they've had some players, right? Joey Bosa, Khalil Mack, Derwin James, some decent linebackers, decent corners. Haven't been able to push through to a playoff win. And then, I mean, there are more candidates externally, but internal candidates. Uh, Daniel Bullocks is the, the defensive backs coach. Johnny Holland, linebackers coach. Johnny Holland is is battling blood cancer, and he had to step away from the team. Uh, was it last year or the year before for treatment? So I, I mean, knock on wood, right? Hopefully he is on the mend. Um, hopefully something that he can overcome it may be a position where the Niners think twice about that much responsibility and, and stress uh, on someone who isn't 100% health-wise. And then there, you know, people are mentioning, is there anyone on D'Amico Ryan's staff? Is there anyone on Robert Sala's staff with the Jets that they can maybe pull over? I, I think it's going to be some internal hire. I think Shanahan went internally after Sala left, and that worked out with Ryan's, uh, bringing in... Steve Wilkes and not being able to run his system or bring in his own guys did kind of hamstring him and set him up for failure in a way, but that failure should have been in some ways mitigated or overcome by the amount of talent on the defensive side of the ball. Hopefully between, you know, the next week or two, I mean, they should definitely have a defensive coordinator before free agency starts because they want to get the input of that D coordinator on who to, who to keep. Uh, their own free agents, or who to look at outside of the organization. But again, you can never say absolutely never in this world, but it's as close of a chance to 0% as possible for Belichick or Pete Carroll to be named defensive coordinator. And I don't want someone like a Mike Vrabel because he may, I don't know if he's a great defensive coordinator. He had one year in Houston as a DC, did not really go that well, although he wasn't working with a ton of talent. And he may jump ship for a head coaching gig um, in 2025. I wouldn't mind whoever they bring in. Whoever they bring in. They may not have 
the secondary players right now, like two really good corners, I, I, Tra- Traverius Ward, all pro, Diamondler Lenore, solid, Ambry Thomas, average to below average. They can't run what the Chiefs were running or what the Ravens were running. A lot of man. You need really three at least above average cornerbacks to do that. The Niners don't have that. Maybe they will have that starting the 2024 season. But I would like to see this team, and I said it in the lead up to the Super Bowl. This team has too many all pros and pro bowlers, too much talent to be a bend but don't break defense because the upper echelon quarterbacks, like, a, I mean, of course, a Patrick Mahomes, but a Josh Allen, potentially, a Lamar Jackson, uh, Jalen Hurts, maybe, although they absolutely smoked the, the Eagles this year, 42-19, and Chris Smith, Chris uh, Sims, excuse me, Phil Sims' son on Pro Football um, Network came out and said Jalen Hurts is the most overrated player in the league. And when you think about it, the amount of talent that he has offensively, the offensive line that he has, best offensive line in the league, and the fact that, what, 75% of his rushing touchdowns are, are one or two-yard tush pushes? I don't know if he's the most overrated player in the league, but he he is overrated. Um, he, he honestly is great fantasy quarterback, but overrated actual NFL quarterback. Kirk Cousins, when everybody's fully healthy, Matt Stafford, like these are teams that will break the bend, but don't break defense. I want to see this team start playing downhill. I want to see this defense specifically playing with more aggression, challenging receivers, challenging the offense and the offensive scheme as a whole. It's great to be able to rush for and and generate pressure and uh, maybe cause an incompletion, a sack, a throwaway, an interception, whatever it may be. But the front four this year, if we're saying it has, it wasn't that great, wasn't that great in 2021, wasn't that great in 2022, wasn't that great, and wasn't as good as we remember it in 2019. If this was a defense generating between 58 and 70 sacks then yeah, rush four or five to your heart's content and play coverage, play zone, play soft when you need to. And there's times to play soft third and 15. Sure, line up 10 yards deep. First and 15, no need to do it. Second and 15, no need to do it. Challenge receivers. Make them work for those seven or eight yards versus just absolutely giving it to them, which is what one of Wilkes's fatal flaws was and he is an aggressive defensive coordinator by nature and Shanahan apparently told him to blitz less so 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 a lot of this is on Shanahan a lot of this is on Shanahan he neutered Wilkes in a way whoever he brings in he's going to want to run this still wide nine defensive line cover three defense fine but how about a little bit more contesting the defense Playing up, challenging, timely blitzes, disguising blitzes, playing downhill, playing how the Chiefs and Ravens played, but maybe not with such of a so much of a man-to-man element because they don't have those secondary players. I don't care who the candidate is, that's what I want to see. There's too much talent on this defense to be a read and react defense. This should be an exert your will defense when they need to. Or make things difficult the vast majority of the time defense because they're so athletic and there's so many pro bowlers plus, right? Otherwise, it feels like wasting the talent or not maximizing the talent. So I don't care about the candidate. I care about the philosophy. 
Now let's quickly move on to San Francisco signed 15 players. Many of many of these were players on their practice squad. Some were some outside signings. But let's go through them. They signed offensive tackle Sebastian Gutierrez, safety Corey Luciano, who was on the practice squad to end the season and does have potential to be a backup center uh, behind Jake Brendel. Tight end Jake Tongs was on the practice squad. Wide receiver Tay Martin practice squad as well. Defensive tackles, T.Y. McGill, veteran, and Spencer Wage, both on the practice squad to end the season. Defensive ends, they're loading up here. Alex Barrett was on the practice squad the past couple seasons. Austin Bryant signed last offseason on and off the practice squad, concluded the season on the practice squad. Now there's some new additions. Ernest Brown, the fourth, played with the Rams. Defensive end experience, Raymond Johnson, the third, and Sam Okeanu, who could play inside as well as a, as a D tackle. But one, at least four defensive ends. Now, that are any of these players going to make the roster? I think Austin Bryant and Ernest Brown have a chance. And we're going to get into defense in the next podcast. But San Francisco, and we're going to go through, let's go through the other positions. Linebacker Curtis Robinson was on the practice squad all season. Refused to sign with another team and come off the practice squad because he wanted to see everything through with San Francisco. Could be a replace, maybe not a replacement Starter for Dre Greenlaw, but a replacement on the active roster as one of probably the five linebackers they're going to carry. Cornerback Kimon Hall ended on the practice squad. Taylor Hawkins ended on the practice squad, although he injured his wrist week 18 against the Rams and was put on IR. And uh, veteran safety Eric Harris also ended on the practice squad. Who was not signed uh, to a contract, running back Ty Davis-Price, another third-round running back waste because you are they are not drafting the right kind of dual-roll backs similar to what McCaffrey can do. There are running backs in the draft, everybody, that are both runners and can have add a little something or more than a little something from, from the receiving game. They just got to draft somebody like that. 49er web zone website favorite ill Manning undrafted free agent guard center. Uh, people were all so many people were clamoring. He's going to make the active roster. I was saying, come on guys, like let's it's cool to, to root for an underdog, but he's not going to make the active roster. He did not, uh, didn't even make the practice squad eventually became a practice squad player, got signed by the Arizona Cardinals. So their active roster got released back to the Niners practice squad to end 2023 and was not signed, at least right now, by the 49ers. So training camp heroes, training camp crushes, usually amount to nothing. And wide receiver Willie Sneed, veteran, who saw, I think, three elevations, if not more, during the um, uh, playoffs, has currently not been signed. So listen, loaded up on defensive ends. Right now on their team, they have signed for next year, Nick Bosa, Drake Jackson, who's recovering from some sort of knee injury. We don't know what. And uh, Robert Beal, who will now be in his second year. They're going to have five defensive ends that are going to make the 53-man roster. I have some thoughts on players they may resign in the next podcast, but they have four, if not five, additional defensive ends signed to their roster. And I think there's two of them Austin Bryant and Ernest Brown the fourth that could potentially make their way on the 53-man roster 
next September, but we are not there yet. And we're going to go over, like I mentioned, we're going to go over defense in next week's podcast. So let's transition to offense. The Brandon Ayuk situation. If you guys aren't familiar, his girlfriend or fiance now, I'm not sure if they're engaged, went on social media after the, before or after the Super Bowl saying it's his last year in San Francisco. Uh, we're so thankful for our time. I think his brother, one of his friends, was echoing the same sort of sentiment on social media. One, if this wasn't premeditated, players, you have to get your friends and, and significant others in line. This is not helping. If it is premeditated, then it's all part of some sort of master plan of looking like, you know, a pouty diva, similar to what Devo Samuel did two years ago. Listen, and Ayuk was visibly upset after the Super Bowl. They asked, you know, does he want to be back in San Francisco? And he said, if that, if that's the right move, yeah. And when asked what the right move is, his answer was winning a championship. Well, Teams that you've been linked to being traded to, the Raiders, the Giants, and the Patriots, are nowhere close to that. The Niners are not going to trade you to the Ravens. They're not going to trade you to the Chiefs. They're not going to trade you to the Lions. Any team, especially in the NFC, that is close to winning a championship. And he is under contract, his fifth year uh, rookie year option for $14 million guaranteed. Now, so he, he's under contract. Asking someone how they're feeling the day after the Super Bowl is not the greatest. You're not going to, you're going to get raw emotion, right? He had six targets during the Super Bowl, three catches for 49 yards. He and Purdy uh, misconnected on a deep shot to the end zone. As far as targets go, he was third on the team in targets. Debo had 11. McCaffrey caught all eight of his targets. Ayuk had a great Season, 75 catches, 1,342 yards, seven touchdowns, pro bowler. He does not get a ton of volume in terms of targets because of how much they run the ball, but make no mistake, he is their number one receiver, their number one wide receiver. He was their number one wide receiver starting in 2022. So all of 2022 and all of last year. Here's his stats. In four seasons with the Niners, he has 269 receptions, 3,931 yards, and uh, 25 total touchdowns. Now compare that with Debo in five years as a receiver. Debo, 283 receptions, so 14 more than Ayuk. 4,122 yards, so about 100 and. 90 yards more than Ayuk in a, a season more and 19 touchdowns versus Ayuk's 25. Now, yes, Debo has missed a good amount, some games in there. Ayuk has missed less still, but what, what Debo does bring is in addition to 4,122 receiving yards, 1,007 rushing yards and 19 rushing touchdowns. Debo got a $25 million a year contract after the 2021 season when he had over 1,400 yards receiving. Similar year to Ayuk receiving. I don't, guys, anybody saying, well, they're going to have to release Brandon Ayuk because of the salary cap, they, they're, you're, they're casuals. They don't understand how the cap works. They don't understand how you can free up money. They don't understand that there's other players that they can restructure or release 
that will accommodate Brandon Ayuk. Now, yes, he is guaranteed $14 million for 2024. And right now, the 49ers are $12.4 million over the cap. But they still have, with, with the, the 15 players they signed, right now they, they can field a football team. They have 55 players or 54 players under contract. They're going to get 8 to 11 more in the draft. They're going to bring back a couple free agents. And you're going to have to get to 90 for your training camp roster anyway. But here's a, something a lot of people don't know. What, I'm not going to say if. When the 49ers extend Brandon Ayuk, they're going to save $10.4 million, $10 million on the salary cap for 2024. So his $14 million cap hit is going to go down to $3.6 million. So right there, now they're only $2 million over the cap. They are not going to let Brandon Ayuk go. They're gonna, they, they should be taking a hard stance like we do with Debo. The Niners shouldn't be paying. They, the Niners didn't want to pay two defensive tackles a lot of money back in 2020 when they traded DeForest Buckner to the Colts for a first-round pick that became Javon Kinlaw bust and re-signed Eric Armstead, which we're going to get into next week, coming off of a career year, 10 sacks. And he's making a whole lot of money, which might not be justified anymore. But you don't break up the team when your window for winning a Super Bowl is 2024 and 2025. Then you can start making some difficult decisions because Brock Purdy is going to get 40 plus million dollars a year and it's going to totally blow up your positional allocations for what you're willing to spend. Would I be shocked if they trade Ayuk? No. Because if he puts up a stink and he wants to go somewhere and they, you know, I they... Let's say they could flip Brandon Ayuk for Calvin Ridley because the, the Jaguars may release him because if the Jaguars re-sign him, they owe the Falcons a second round pick. So maybe the Niners and, and Jaguars can work something out where you're swapping receivers and you know maybe the Niners get some sort of pick back plus you know, the Falcons have to get something freely. I don't know what, what it would work out to be. That was the only thing that kind of th- thought in my head. If you're going to trade him... You got to get something of value at the receiver spot in return and maybe someone you can sign for cheaper than Ayuk. All that being said, Ayuk has chemistry with Brock Purdy. I would do everything I can to sign Brandon Ayuk to an extension similar to what Debo's got. And no matter what happens in 2024, you go into next offseason 2025 and then you relook at it and say, okay, is Debo wearing down? Can we trade Debo? Is there anybody else that we can trade? I would keep Ayuk over Debo seven out of seven days over the week. But you can only keep Ayuk if you sign him. You can push this salary cap decision off, guys, for another year or two. You don't have to make decision today. You don't have to make it this offseason. And anybody that's saying, oh, they're going to have to cut this and do this and do that, you don't have to do that. You can rework contracts and push the decisions off until after the 2025 season, again, because that's when Purdy's extension is going to kick in. And the same thing I'm hearing a lot of trade Debo, trade Kittle. No, you don't break up your offensive core when your Super Bowl window is still open. You don't do that. And don't say, well, look at A.J. Brown who got traded. The Titans were going nowhere. 
Why spend that much money on a receiver to just still be a mediocre franchise? It's it was it made more sense to trade him for a first round pick. Now they they picked up who Trayvon Burks or whatever, and he hasn't been all that good. So that's there 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 are. Be careful what you think you're going to get because it is you are just not slotting in a receiver to take Ayuk's place at all. At all, at all, at all. Calvin Ridley and the Jaguars, some sort of a, a swap and pick swap or whatever, would be the closest to it, but I would still not do it. Ayuk's been durable. Best route runner on the team. Great hands. Good blocker. And that's going to cost money? You pay it. Pay for this offense. You already got a lot of all pros and pro bowlers on the defense. Pay to make the offense stick together and be explosive again so you can make another run in 2024 and 2025. But Kittle's not going to get traded. Oh, he's 31 years old. Travis Kelsey's 34, guys. Kittle's got two or three more good years left. If they trade Kittle, $18 million in dead money. Saves only $4 million. No reason. Trading Debo, $14 million in dead money. Dead cap hit. Does save $14 million. But again, we saw what the offense was for three games, right? Without Trent Williams and Debo Samuel. Not great. Cleveland... Minnesota and Cincinnati, three not pushover teams, and Cleveland had the number one defense all year. I get it, but there is no reason to break this up when you're only 12.4 million over the cap and you can save a little over 10 by extending Ayuk. And there's other things that they can do. I'm going to go into it for the offense momentarily and the defense in next podcast, but there's no, they're going to have to make decisions at some point. You don't have to make them now. If you want to load up and make another Super Bowl run, you keep as many of the pieces as possible that you can. Have a good draft and and rookies that actually play because that's a big Shanahan no-no. He doesn't play rookies. And one, or, one, two, or three modest free agent signings that supplement what you're doing already. And of course, a defensive coordinator that's going to run what Kyle wants, but to my liking, is going to be more aggressive and more of a set the tempo, set, dictate the pace type of a defense. Let's switch gears to free agents that the 49ers have this offseason. We'll go through position by position and what they made in 2023. So wide receivers, Ray Ray McLeod made $2 million. Chris Conley, $1.1 million. And Juwan Jennings, $940,000. He is a restricted free agent. So the 49ers can offer him a tender, which equates to a dollar amount. And if a team signs McLeod, they would owe him a pick in that round, quote unquote, that the tender was made. So essentially they have two options. They have a, they can place a second round tender on Jennings, which his salary would be $4.3 million for 2024 guaranteed, or an original round tender, and he was drafted in the seventh round, and his contract would be $2.7 million guaranteed. You know, not a huge difference between $4.3 million and $2.7 when you compare what he was making, $940,000. You know, that's, you know, multiples of, of, of three and four in a way. I don't think anyone will give up a second round pick for Jawan Jennings. I think a team might give up a seventh round pick for Jawan Jennings at that 2.7 million number, but not a second round pick 
at the $4.3 million number. Listen, I like Juwan Jennings. I like him a lot. He's a dog. They call him third down Juwan. From what he picks up, he runs hard. He, he plays with some attitude. He's a good blocker. But here's what also he is. He averages 26 catches a year. He is not an outside receiver. He is not someone, and I've heard some lunacy on social media of, well, if they trade Ayuk, then, you know, Jennings could be a starter. He is not at all an outside starting wide receiver in this league. Too slow. Not a fantastic route runner, and his hands are suspect at times. Now, instead of, you know, biting the bullet on a a $4.3 million guaranteed contract for 2024, Maybe the Niners go with something in between, like a modest multi-year deal. Maybe a two or three, say a three-year deal worth $9 million. You know, maybe $2 million of that is guaranteed. I'm just throwing out numbers here. So you're getting, you know, somewhere between, and maybe the first year is only, you know, one and a half or $2 million cap. Then the next year it goes up and it goes up. million isn't a lot for a receiver, but it would be a third receiver. And when you have players like, you know, Cleveland Farrell only made $2.5 million this year, uh, last 2023, Jennings made $940,000, McLeod $2 million, Conley $1.1. Let's not go nuts over Jawan Jennings. Nice receiver. 26 catches a year. Can't play outside. Relegated to big slot. Do I want him back? Sure. Absolutely. But he's also, when we're talking about positionless football that Kyle Shanahan always quotes, he is not a positionless player. You cannot put him anywhere other than big slot. He is not going to win outside against starting NFL boundary corners. But I do think they should resign him. Tight ends. Ross Dwelly made 1.7 million this past year, Charlie Werner, 870,000. So they have Kittle, they have Cam Latou, who was on IR his rookie year, and Braden Willis, who played, who was just really an extra blocker. I could see them bringing Warner back as a blocker, blocking specialist, if they can develop Latou or Braden Willis as another receiving option outside of George Kittle. And they leave Kittle in in line next to the tackle to block quite a bit. So the Niners to me need a viable number two tight end receiving option. Cause Kittle can obviously block. Braden Willis has showed some blocking. Latou should be able to block a little bit. You know, is a Zach Ertz out of the question? I don't know how much he would ask. He was signed to the Detroit Lions practice squad before the NFC championship game was not activated. You know, do they look at a veteran tight end that has blocking and receiving skills to go along with Kittle, who's a veteran, but also two very young players, Latou, no experience, and Braden Willis played sparingly this year. So I don't see them bringing Dwelly back. I could see them bringing Warner back, but I would rather see them bring in a veteran that has a better shot at being the number two tight end. Quarterback Sam Darnold, $4.5 million in 2023. Brandon Allen made $1.2 million. I'd be okay with bringing Darnold back, but at half that. Two and a half or $3 million. That was around what Gardner Minshew made for the Colts 
And I don't know if he had incentives because he played basically 14, 15 games for them. But I think a backup at 4.5 and then someone behind him at 1.2, you're looking at what, $5.7 million in quarterbacks who did not see the field, fortunately, this year since Purdy was healthy, other than Week 18, which was a, a throwaway game against the Rams. I wouldn't mind bringing Darnold back, but for less. Listen, every 500000 every million dollars counts at this point. Cut it down. Like, see what interest he gets. I don't know who you're bidding against for, for Sam Darnold come mid-March, but if you can get him for three, two and a half million with incentives, playing time incentives, sure. And Brandon Allen for 1.2, like if you could bring him back on a vet minimum, sure. Maybe there's a developmental rookie that they can draft to be the number three quarterback. Because then you could have a cheap backup for four years around what Brock, around what Brock Purdy's making. Guards, offensive guards, Matt Pryor, 1.1 million, Ben Barch, 940,000. Matt Pryor wasn't active for any of the playoff games or Super Bowl. Ben Barch was as a backup guard. Could be a decent depth piece, but he's another one that's a restricted free agent. I don't know if the 49ers can just say, ah, we're just going to bypass this whole restricted free agent stuff. And if they want to sign him to a, a modest deal, like a two-year deal, maybe two years, three million, something like that, modest, because they don't want to get it. Now, Ben Barch was a fourth round pick. So his original round tender would be a fourth at 2.7 million or a second round tender at 4.3 million. Again, I don't think Ben Barch, for someone who didn't play at all, is worth $2.7 million as purely a backup. Unless they're really convinced someone would sign him and the Niners would get a fourth round pick. I, I think they go elsewhere, specifically the draft, to find a backup guard. Because remember, they're bringing back Trent Williams, Aaron Banks at left guard, Jake Brendel at center. Right now, Spencer Buford at right guard, Colton McKivitz at right tackle. Their swing tackle is Jalen Moore. Their backup guard center maybe is Nick Sakil. So they have seven offensive linemen signed. Plus Corey Luciano and Sebastian Gutierrez. So you have your backup center, a backup center and a backup tackle. Should they, if they even only just make it onto the practice squad. I think they can do better at guard in the draft. If they draft a guard, then Spencer Buford is your backup at your guard spots. Jalen Moore is your backup at your tackle spots. And, and Nick Sakil could be in the works as well. Remember, too, if the Niners draft a tackle, which is very possible with their first-round pick, that may solve the guard issue, too, because that would move Colton McKivitz from right tackle to right guard, which I think would be an upgrade over Spencer Buford. And you would still have Jalen Moore as your swing tackle. You, had Burf you would add Burford as an interior player. And Nick Sakil is an interior player. And if Corey Luciano is your backup center, then you have nine offensive linemen on your roster. I do see them addressing this in the draft and maybe a vet uh, free agent. And John Feliciano, who played guard but has experience at center, could come back. I think he had a nice season for the 49ers. Made $2.5 million last year. If they can get him for two, if they can get him for that or a little bit less, I'd be open to him, to him coming back. Or if there's another veteran that could be a center guard swing that is a little less than two and a half million. Again, they are they're going to be scraping to get by and get under the salary cap in some ways. If they don't make, you know, uh, if they're going to they're either going to resign or trade Ayuk. So his 14 million is going to come off the book. 14 or 10 million will come off the book no matter what. 
10 million if they resign him, 10 million less of a cap hit. You know, but if they want to resign a Jennings and it's going to cost, you know, two or three million a year, you know, then we're, then obviously we're creeping up. And, and if there's any other additions, a Charlie Warner will probably need to make a $200,000 more than his 870K contract. You know, Darnold, where is that going to fall? So any signings they're making obviously is going to add to the salary cap. So I'm just trying to figure out, you know, if they can get some players less than what they made last year, even though obviously it's going to increase the cap. And now we're going to look at some cap hits and a player that I think has to take a salary reduction, Kyle Juszczyk. Kyle Juszczyk, fullback, has the 12th highest cap hit on the team, $7.6 million cap hit. If they release him outright, cut him. Before June 1st, this would be actually a greater savings after June 1st. But if they release him before June 1st, they'd be on the hook for $2.7 million, but save $4.9 million. His contract, his, his total contract, the average annual value of his contract was $5.4 million when he signed it two years ago. That's $1.4 million average per year, more than any other fullback. And if you rank his uh, average annual value salary, 5.4 million or cost, 5.4 million, that would rank 16th among running backs. Forget fullbacks, running backs. If they restructure his deal and he's 32 years old and he's in a weird way, the de facto, you know, tight end two now because there is no other tight end other than Kittle that gets more than three receptions a season. A restructure saves the team $2.3 million. But that obviously would be pushing money back into, into future years. I think they should rework his contract so his cap hit is similar to what it would be if they release him. So he should be, even though he's a valuable piece on the team, he should not have a $7.6 million hit. It should be closer to the $3 million range. So if they can rework his contract where his cap hit is closer to what it would be if he was released, meaning if they release him, they would save $4.9 million, but they would be on the hook for $2.7. That's the number they should be working from or near, $2.7. check does have value, to, have value to this team as a blocker, as a receiver, not so much as a runner, but let's not, again, just fall in love with the player because he's been on the team for maybe, is it seven years now? 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, yeah, seven years. His last three years, receptions, 30, then 19, then 14. His last three years, rushes, rushing attempts, eight, seven, five. It's not as easy to say any any fullback out there or fullback in the draft can do what Juszczyk does. I mean, you saw the catches, you know, he made in the Super Bowl, in the NFC Championship game. He is a valuable piece. But he is underperforming compared to what he's going to get paid or what his cap it's going to be. Bring him back, but you're going to have to cut that cap hit at least in half. People have thrown out Colton McKivitz, offensive tackle. If you cut him, you save $3 million. Guys, that's dirt cheap for a right tackle. Dirt cheap. And did he really perform any worse than Mike McGlinchey, who got a humongous contract from the Broncos? They still have McKivitz. It was only a two-year deal for 2024. 
They could do a lot worse for a lot more money. McKivitz is not going anywhere. And we talked about why trading Kittle and Debo doesn't make any sense. Restructuring or extending them could. Again, Kittle's 31, Kelsey's 34 still in the league. Still in the league at a high level. And I think Kittle's evolution the next couple of years needs to be from blocking less to being split out and just more of just a receiving tight end the way Kittle is, the way Antonio Gates was for the Chargers. What um, Tony Gonzalez became from going from the Chiefs to the Falcons. If they restructure Kittle's contract, they save $9.2 million in 2024. If they extend him, $9.8 million is saved. If they restructure Debo's contract, saves them $15 million against the cap this year. If they extend him, it's $16.1 million in 2024, this upcoming season. Both players are signed through 2025, so they only have two more seasons left on their deal. Even though Debo's younger, the way he plays, and Kittle's been injured too and banged up and all this good stuff, I would almost rather restructure Kittle to ensure he's a niner for life in a modest way. I'm sorry, I would rather extend Kittle, excuse me, extend Kittle and structure it in a way that he's a niner for life. And if Debo, I would, I would let this year play out if you want to restructure him and it's not totally damaging to the next couple of years, sure. But if it's a situation where you can sign Ayuk long-term and you get through 2024 and they're able to trade Debo or you extend him and you're still able to trade him in a year or two, you do that. I, I would extend Kittle's contract, get that nearly $10 million in savings, and I would leave Debo alone unless they think an extension still leaves them with an out later on to release him or trade him with not a super significant cap hit. Now, that's that's going to conclude the Niner section of the podcast for today. Next week, we're going to go over the defensive side of the ball where there are additional and significant savings to be had. So just right off the bat, Ayuk saves you $10 million. We're not, we're not figuring in who they're going to have to resign. Ayuk extension saves you $10 million. Reworking uh, Juice's contract could save you another four. Restructuring Kittle saves you another 10. You're at $24 million, bringing you $12 million under the cap before you sign anybody else, Jawan Jennings, whoever it may be. You're now $12 million under the cap before you touch the defensive side of the ball with either releases or restructures. And we will get into that next podcast. That concludes the Niners section. Stick around. We're going to be talking about NBA All-Star Weekend, the movie Madame Web, and the Netflix series Loudermilk. Stay right here. It's plus time. So NBA All-Star Weekend was this past weekend. I watched some of the skills competition, a little bit of the main three-point shootout, uh, which was a Damian Lillard wound up winning. You know, it, it's it's a nice event. The game itself we'll get into was, was terrible. Um, defending champ Mac McClung, McClung winds up beating 
Jalen Brown of the Celtics in the dunk contest. He needed nearly a perfect dunk to beat Jalen Brown, and Mac McClung winds up jumping over Shaq with a reverse dunk to win the dunk contest again. Why is this noteworthy? Because he's a six foot two white dude who last year was in the G League but dunked for the Sixers or might have been on the Sixers squad for a little bit, and I forget who he was playing for this year, but had some phenomenal dunks. Uh, Good to see, you want to say the underdog win, because he won it last year, but I guess physically and looking at him, perceptually, he's he's a bit of an underdog, because (coughs) did any of us ever think we would see like a, a six foot, a white kid? White guy, let alone a six foot two white guy, win the NBA dunk contest. But exciting dunks again. Good for him, and we'll see if he can three P. And I think he's only one of four players, including Michael Jordan, to win a dunk contest back to back. So, for as ex- as much as you're going to be waiting with bated breath for next year's All Star Weekend, hopefully Mac McClung will be in it to go for the three P. They did have an interesting. Three-point shootout between the NBA, Steph Curry, and the WNBA, represented by Sabrina Ionescu. I think, you know, there was some controversy with what something that Kevin Kenny Smith said during the broadcast. Um, You know, I think it was just a weird, not-on-a-level playing field type of situation. So, Steph Curry was shooting from the NBA three-point line with an NBA ball. Ionescu was using a WNBA ball, which makes sense, but she was also shooting from the NBA line, which doesn't make sense to me. And I understand that they're not going to put in, or maybe just for the competition, are they able to quickly put in the woman's three-point line, which is a foot and a half closer. So Sabrina was a good sport and shot from the actual NBA line. And Steph had 29 points. Sabrina had 26 points. She she was shooting phenomenally. But to me, it doesn't, whether you're using a different ball or not, you are asking a player to shoot farther than what she's normally accustomed to or where her the three-point line is in her WNBA league. Now, does she shoot farther than that occasionally or from time to time or a lot of the time? I don't even know. Yeah, probably. And I think the corners probably aren't a foot and a half uh, farther out. I think it's probably more, you know, the top of the key that they're talking. But still, I think she was at, she was actually at a disadvantage and she performed really, really well. So, you know, all love, you know, to, to Steph Curry and Sabrina for doing this and great showings by both athletes. Hopefully they'll do this, you know, again next year. Um, but the main game, man, First, 211 to 186, east over the west. First time a game's gone over 200 points by a team. No defense being played. Everybody was driving to the rim and then kicking out to someone open for three. I think there was, what was there, over like close to 53 pointers per team. Like it was just, it was an embarrassing game. At least in years past when you had LeBron and Giannis draft teams, there were charities they were playing for each quarter, whichever team won the quarter, the money got to go to a charity. You saw some defense. You saw some, I won't use the word intensity, but moderate (laughs) intensity. This was a joke. This was a complete exhibition. 
I don't know what they're going to do to it. Should they just make it a skills contest or figure out a way because team people are playing saying that they don't want to get hurt. Injuries in the NBA are so less frequent than injuries in the NFL. I can, you can understand why the Pro Bowl game was taken away. But even then, you really can't name that many injuries that have happened during a Pro Bowl game. But the actual tackle Pro, Pro Bowl game versus, you know, flag football. You can still get hurt playing flag football. Plant your knee the wrong way. I mean, look at all the non-contact injuries, ankle, Achilles, knee that happened in the NFL. Do people get injured in the NBA? Sure, but it's not as frequent, especially if you're talking about back, hip, lower body type things. But the game has just become an absolute unwatchable, I don't call it disgrace, but just an unwatchable playing at half speed exhibition and one of the players was caught as saying, well, you really can't play defense when people are shooting 40 or 50 feet deep. Like, yeah, but you weren't playing defense in the paint. And the only reason they were shooting 40 or 50 feet deep was because most of this game was kickouts for threes. It, it just brutal to watch if you're there and you're hoping to get autographs or like, you know, C player, all these great players on the court and the skills competition. That's one thing, but Boy, is it brutal, and I think I'm preaching to the choir there. Now let's transition from sports to movies. So Madam Webb, starring Dakota Fanning, Sidney Sweeney, and others, had a $15.3 million domestic opening. Um, it, had, it performed a little bit better than that. It was about $25 million if you count Wednesday through Monday, the starting at Valentine's Day through the President's Day holiday weekend. In total, $52 million worldwide. Now, there were rumblings that uh, Dakota Fanning, you know, wasn't, you know, be, not she wasn't being uh, throwing tantrums, but not being a good sport on like the the junkets, the circuit. Once she saw the trailer, she fired her agent. Everybody knew this was going to be a bomb. Everybody, their mothers, their cousins, their pets, their their chia pets, trees, pet rocks. Everybody knew this was going to be a bomb. And it sounds like Sony was late in the game, Sony Pictures, into understanding how much of a bomb this was going to be. Because if you use the two and a half times multiplier, there were numbers that it was, it, it cost $80 million to produce. Then they said the real number was low hundreds. You know, you could average out 90, 90 million. But I'm going to use the $80 million to produce number just to make the movie. The two and a half multiplier includes advertising overseas and Sony only getting 50% of the ticket sales means that Madam Web has to hit $200 million worldwide to break even. They're at $52 million. Now it will not get there. And you only need to look to Morbius, the vampire movie by Sony Entertainment from two, uh, was it 2022? Yeah, two years ago. $80 million to make, $167 million worldwide. Hume lost over $30 million. And they actually re-released, Morbius was becoming such a joke, such an internet meme, that they actually re-released the film, was it sometime last year? And obviously still nobody cared. Now what's up next? Craven, the hunter. 
releases August 30th of this year. It's going to be rated R, which immediately will be dipping into anything it's going to make. This is the Sony Spider-Man Cinematic Universe. Madam Web, Morbius, Craven. But oops, it doesn't contain Spider-Man. But Sony, since they bought the rights from Marvel, has a contract with them that they need to release a movie. The numbers vary. But based on what I'm going to share with you, it seems like the number could be every five years. Or that's what it was in the past. And maybe there is a renegotiated deal when they agreed to let Spider-Man into the MCU with Tom Holland. uh, With uh, the first movie, Spider-Man Homecoming. But originally it might have been every five years. The first Sony Spider-Man movie came out in 2002. This is the trilogy uh, with Tobey Maguire. Then Spider-Man 2 was 2004. Spider-Man 3 was 2007. There was no Spider-Man or related movie until Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield in 2012. So there's your five-year gap. Then there was Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 2014. The next Spider-Man related movie would have been No Way Home. I'm sorry, Long uh, Homecoming, 2016. Or no, I'm sorry, it might have been Civil War where Spider-Man was introduced in 2015 or 16. Then the next year was Homecoming with Tom Holland again. But those were MCU, Sony Pictures, joint type of things. But I guess that counts for the timeline. It counts for the duration of you need to make another movie within a certain amount of time, Sony, either with us, Marvel, or by yourselves, or the rights revert back to us, back to Marvel. So they say that was 2015, 2016-ish. For, for Sony, independently, you have Venom in 2018, which was a hit, made over $830, $40 million worldwide. Then you have, in 2018 also, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Very well done animated movie, made about $350 million worldwide. Then you have a wait until 2021 with Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, made $300 million less than Venom 1. Now this was still, it was coming off the pandemic. I don't think it opened in China, which was a large market, but all that does does not matter to the bottom line. That still seemed to turn a profit for Sony. Venom turned a large profit. Spider-Man into the into the Spider-Verse, the first one, did turn a decent profit, and Venom an okay profit. Now you're getting into bombs. 2022, Morbius lost $30 million. Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, 2023, made about twice as much as the first movie on a slightly higher budget, so very profitable film for Sony. So Morbius bomb, $30 million in debt. Madame, Madame Webb 2024 is going to be at least $30 million in the red. And then Craven comes out again this year. I'm sure that's going to lose money as well. So they, so Sony is living off of whatever they made. You know, the Spider-Man trilogy, 2002, 2004, 2007. Good. Amazing Spider-Man. With Andrew Garfield, 2012, 2014. And then they had Venom. Then they had Marvel joint ventures with Tom Holland being Spider-Man. And Venom, 
being profitable and into the Spider-Verse and Venom 2. So when you look at it, the bombs aren't killing Sony. Morbius losing 30 plus million isn't going to kill Sony. Madam Web losing probably 40 to 50 plus million isn't going to kill Sony. Craven coming out now as an R-rated movie without Spider-Man in again, I don't know really who's going to see this movie and make it profitable. So you can't really say, why is Sony making these movies? Maybe they thought, well, maybe hey, Venom was an anti-hero bad guy. Maybe Morbius or, you know, Madam Web. Maybe we can, you know, play to a female audience. Craven's another anti-hero kind of bad guy. Mor- Morbius is not Venom. Venom is a super popular character. Morbius is not. Craven is not. Madam Web, they made the mistake of thinking, well, maybe we can tap into the female comic book audience to drive up ticket sales. But the research shows that 75% of the audience for comic book movies are male. Whether they're adults, middle-aged, senior citizens, or kids, 70 to 75% are male. You are not going to get women to see a comic book movie because it's headlined by women. Only 25 to 30% of women want to see a comic book movie. And it's not like that they want to see men, although having an attractive lead like a Chris Hemsworth or a Tom Hardy with Venom will help. They're not going to want to go see attractive women just because they're superheroes. If anything, you're hoping for like the perverted prepubescence or 20-somethings that want to go there, get a seat in the back row and whack off to Sidney Sweeney. Again, I don't think these flops are really going to put such a dent in Sony's pocketbook or wallet that they're not going to make movies anymore. But why are you rushing to put out crap movies? Morbius in 2022, Madame Webb in 2024, Craven in 2024. What's the rush? You had Venom 2 in 2021. Did you feel like you had to come out with another movie, a Morbius movie in 2022? You have Across across the Spider-Verse So Spider-Verse Part 2 came out in 2023. Why are you rushing two bad movies this year, Sony, 2024? Two movies in 2024. If you spread the garbage out to every two years, I guess it doesn't matter. It's just garbage. But why are you still rushing? You're rushing to lose money. Why are you doing that? And they had another movie on the slate. They they had a, a Sinister Six movie that was supposed to come out seven years ago. Never did. They had another movie on the slate, um, an El Muerto, who is a wrestler in the Spider-Man universe that winds up becoming a bad guy. They took off, take, they took that off of their calendar. Good move, Sony. I mean, we could have told you that five years ago. And you created a Marvel, you created a Spider-Man cinematic universe without Spider-Man. What do you think was going to happen? And I don't know if if Tom Holland or any other Spider-Man is going to be part of your universe, but they could have been. You could have had a Miles Morales. Ultimate Spider-Man live action. You could have had a Spider-Man 2099 live action. You could have done even a different Ultimate Spider-Man. Make up your own character that's not created to the comic books. Miles Morales and Spider-Man 2099 are part of the animated Spider-Verse series of movies. And they are profitable. And I'm not saying if you made either one of those characters live action instead of animated that if it would have been more profitable because Sony shows that it's, it cannot figure out 
Well, it can't figure out the non-Spider-Man formula, but I'm not totally convinced it can figure out the Spider-Man formula coming off of what they did in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Marvel had to help them reboot it because Marvel gets its characters. I don't know what lies ahead for Sony after Craven in August. I don't know what's on the slate, coming down the pike, but they can just let it breathe. The next Spider-Verse movie, I think either comes out in 2024 or 2025. Just pin your profits on that. It will make money. It'll probably make somewhere between part one and part two, which is still a really good haul. And then while this is in development, figure out, okay, what, what should come out in 2027? Nothing needs to come out in 2025. No live action needs to, or 2026. It's going to be shit no matter what it is. Figure it out. Whether you want to do a Green Goblin, a Dr. Octopus, a Sinister Six movie. But again, none of these characters work without Spider-Man. Maybe by then they could figure out how to pull Tom Holland in as Spider-Man or another character. I mean, if you're going to play in the Spider-Verse in the animated sense, bring it into live action. I'm not crying for Sony, but I am just curious how they created a... Remember, Sony was the picture house production company that created... Remember the, the Monsterverse? It was supposed to be a whole bunch of monster movies. The first being The Mummy with Tom Cruise. And not that it was a reboot of The Mummy with Brendan Fraser um, and that whole cast from, from 99 and 2002. But that was supposed to launch a monster cinematic universe, but the mummy was received so poorly that universe fizzled. This universe is fizzling. It's on its death throes in terms of what they're trying to do live action. Venom 3 is going to make less money than Venom 2. It just is. It's going to be a bad movie. People will go that are Venom fans and like Tom Hardy. People will go and it'll probably pull, turn a minor profit. So that's better than a loss. Marvel is no longer printing money with movies. DC hasn't been. They've been losing money. We'll see what the reboot with James Gunn can do. Sony needs to chill out. After 2024, no more live action movies. See where the finale to the Spider-Verse takes you and then really figure out what you're going to do. Why make a movie just to lose money? You might as well just somehow negotiate selling back the rights to Marvel. Now, one last screen-related thing will go from movies to TV. I recently started watching the comedy Louder Milk on Netflix. This stars Ron Livingston from Swingers and Office Space fame. There are three seasons. Each season, I think, is eight or ten episodes. Ron Livingston's character, Sam Loudermilk, is a former music critic, and he's a recovering alcoholic, and he runs a substance abuse meeting in a church and is tasked with helping a young girl stay clean um, who just kind of went south after her dad died. Um, Ron Livingston's character lives with another recovering alcoholic who is his sponsor. And one of the story threads is his sponsor is uh, falling off the wagon and he's drinking again. Um, Sam Loudermilk has... I guess a crush on his uh, next door neighbor in his apartment complex, but she's, you know, dating someone who is a doctor. So he's navigating that. And Ron Livingston's character in this, I should have led with this is an absolute prick. Um, 
not a people person. I don't know if this is a remnant. And I'm only, I think, like six episodes in. If this is a remnant of his alcoholism, how he doesn't like people, or the fact that he was a critic for um, music and he actually traveled with bands, wrote books about them. If seeing, you know, that, you know, how musicians live, you know, soured him. He's a prick and it's awesome. You know, and there's situations where he's saying things that we're thinking. He's been in situations that we've been in. Um, and just kind of letting loose. It's a continuation in a, in a weird way of his Peter character from office space who went under that, went through that hypnosis and started not caring about his job and just being very blunt about things. This is him. I can almost see this character 20 years later. Cause it literally is well, like, yeah, 20 years later when, when the first season of Loudermill came out that if he got out of, you know, I guess the end of office space, he was working construction. If he got out of construction and started morphing into this character you can you can kind of see it and i think ron livingston is the perfect cast for this facial expressions the apathetic look that he has on his face most of the time um how he delivers dry lines one-liners getting pissed off it it all works and there's a couple main i won't spoil anything else for it but a couple main story threads that make this obviously a comedy but one where each episode builds off the next. And I know generally comedies out there do that, but a lot of, uh, oftentimes there are a lot of one-off episodes for comedies because you're getting, you know, 22, 24 episodes, whereas each season is only eight to 10. I think the full three seasons, there's 28 episodes total. So it feels like while it's a comedy, it's still, the story is still building and growing. It is a relatively small ensemble of characters, and maybe that's going to grow in season two or season three. So if you're not just watching it for the laughs. You are watching as if you would be watching an hour drama to see how the story progresses week to week and season to season. So if you haven't checked that out, if you're a fan of Ron Livingston, you like Office Space, you like, you know, dark comedy, dry humor, there obviously is swearing, there are some sexual situations, you're not really seeing all that much. Um, You'll know the first episode or two if the comedy is your cup of tea, or if you are interested in the story of Sam Loudermilk's character running his group, and you know, and if the, the 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 young girl that he is helping, if she can kind of stay sober as well. So happy that I found that on Netflix. In addition to the a lot of other things that I want to watch and get through, but it's a nice half hour distraction because it is over the top at times and rude and absurd and. Again, I think he shares a lot of the things that that we are thinking or feeling in certain situations, and it's really well done. It's it's done by one of the Farrelly brothers, Peter Farrelly. So remember from, you know, like Dumb and Dumber, there's something about Mary. There's no gross-out humor in this, at least from what I've seen yet, but someone who has strong comedic roots created the show, has directed some of the episodes, and, and written some um, as well for whatever that's worth. But that will conclude the podcast for today. Like always, I want to thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to make us part of your listening routine. We will be back next week with another singular podcast, hopefully with some plus content as well. And we will hopefully by that time, the 49ers will have a new defensive coordinator. We'll dive into that. And we are going to dive into any other Niners news and notes that is relevant and want to share. And we will be going into a deep dive on the defensive side of the ball player salaries, player cap hits, who might potentially be released, restructured, or extended 
to make additional cap room for the 49ers so they can keep their core together, as much of their core as they can, for 2024 and 2025 until Brock, and then at that point, Brock Purdy's salary is going to balloon to 40, at least 40 times what it is now. But until then, whatever you are doing, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we will talk soon. Take care.